This is an ABC podcast. G'day there, this is Tom Switzer and you're tuning into Between the Lines on Radio National. How are you today? Well, to put last week's US elections in a broader context, we'll soon chat with a former Republican presidential candidate who championed America first. Plus, coming up later in the show, the anniversary of the dismissal of Prime Minister Gough Whitlam and the debunking of the palace conspiracy theory. I mean, it's very clear in these letters, Tom, that the Queen was distant from events and always said they this issue, this crisis, had to be sorted out in Australia and they sought no role and wanted no role. That's Troy Bramston, co-author of a new book, The Truth of the Palace Letters, Deceit, Ambush and the Dismissal in 1975. Stay with us for that. Well, it's been more than a week since the US presidential election. Joe Biden, of course, has claimed victory, whereas the president is yet to concede defeat. But when Donald Trump eventually leaves office, the question we have to ask ourselves is, is Trumpism really finished? After all, the media conventional wisdom, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the major US networks, CNN, MSNBC, all that. Conventional wisdom is that the 2020 election represents a repudiation of Trumpism. And what's Trump likely to do after he leaves office? Well, for more, let's turn to Patrick J. Buchanan, a senior advisor to Presidents Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. Pat has been a regular fixture in America's opinion pages and cable television shows for generations. In 1992 and 1996, Pat Buchanan ran for the presidential nomination of his party, the Republican Party. It was on America First platform. Pat, welcome back to Between the Lines. Good to talk to you, Tom. Now, let's start with the election itself. Despite a trifecta of crises, health, economic, racial, the US congressional and presidential contests were very tight. How do you account for that? Well, I think they were tight for this reason. The COVID virus, which hit, hammered us in March and April and then all during the summer and fall, took the lives of 230,000 Americans and they induced an economic decline unrivaled since the Great Depression. And then you had the racial turmoil in the country in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in, in Minneapolis. Riots and, and things like that. So these really damaged Trump in the eyes of the public and his administration. And normally they would have killed any presidential candidate. But I will say that in the fall when Trump was further behind, he basically won the campaign. He won the battle against Biden. He was surging at the end of the campaign, but he did not get over the top, at least so far. So I think what you can say is that Trump and Trumpism won the campaign, but they lost the election because of the burdens they had to carry, which were too heavy to cross the finish line. And let's not forget that in the lead up to the election, the, the media conventional wisdom, the polls, the pundits, uh, they predicted a democratic sweep, a, a blue wave washing the Republicans out of power, capturing the Senate and delivering an enlarged democratic congressional majority. If the Democrats did indeed have a, a clean sweep of the Congress and the White House, what would radical progressive change in the American context, what would that have meant? If you had Nancy Pelosi in control of the House and Chuck Schumer in control of the Senate, 
which looks less and less likely now. And President Biden in the White House, Biden's problem would be the tremendous pressure from the progressive left wing of his party to impose his leftist agenda of the party onto the country in the first two years of his administration. And I think it would be virtually impossible for Biden to resist. The Democrats would seek to kill the filibuster, which would eliminate the ability of Republicans to stop their agenda. And we would be off to the races with Medicare for all, the Green New Deal, statehood for Puerto Rico, statehood for D.C., defund the cops, pack the Supreme Court. The whole left-wing Democratic agenda, they would try to ram through with 51 votes in the Senate. And Biden, frankly, would be the restraining force because the Republicans wouldn't be able to do it if they lost the filibuster in the Senate, which is what Barack Obama urges the Democrats to take away if they win the Senate. Okay. Now, Biden has surpassed the 270 Electoral College votes needed to win the White House. Now, given that it's very hard to prove widespread electoral fraud, Pat, why won't Trump just accept defeat? Well, I think what's going on here is Trump is demanding that he be allowed to play out every last play of the deal, because I think he feels he has been treated horribly by the Democrats and the liberals in the press, and he's not going to do them a favor. He's got a right to make sure the counts are made and certain things happen by certain dates. He's not going to speed up the transition. It's not going to be a pleasant transition at all. He's going to treat them the way they he felt they treated him when he came in with the Russia investigation and all the rest of it. So I think what you're getting is Trump is looking at, upon this, if it succeeds, as a hostile takeover of the government of the United States. And he is acting to resist it with every legal and constitutional weapon he has. So it's, uh, this is not a cordial uh, pass, passage of power at all. Okay, but we've been here before. I mean, the 1960 presidential election between Richard Nixon and John F. Kennedy, that was very tight. There was a lot of speculation about electoral fraud in Texas and Illinois, and that, of course, benefited the Democrats who won that election. Now, apologies for the very scratchy sound quality of this vintage news report from 60 years ago, but here's Nixon, your old boss, Pat. Here he is at 4 a.m. at Republican headquarters after the election conceding defeat to JFK. As I look at the board here, uh, while there are still some results still to come in, uh, if the present trend continues, uh, Mr. Kennedy, Senator Kennedy, will be the next president of the United States. I I want Senator Kennedy to know, and I want all of you to know, that... uh, Certainly, if this trend does continue and uh, he does become our next president, that he will have my wholehearted support. That's Richard Nixon conceding defeat to John F. Kennedy in 1960. Pat Buchanan, why can't Trump do a Nixon and accept defeat graciously? Uh, Let me say that at that 4 a.m. gathering, my wife was present. She worked for Richard Nixon in the 1960 campaign and traveled the country with him. And the point is, that was a different time in a different country than America is today. America is bitterly divided, and one of the contributing factors is the is the belief, correct in my view, 
that Donald Trump was denied not only a good transition, but Donald Trump was investigated even while he was a candidate by the FBI. And during the transition, they went after his staff. The FBI did. Then they had a two-year investigation. Then they impeached him. They tried to defeat him. Then they tried to overthrow him. And I think Trump feels this, and he says, I owe the establishment nothing. They can go, I mean, they can go to hell as far as I'm concerned. And we're going to run this all the way out and make sure every ballot is counted and all the counts are accurate. And where they're not, we're going to go to court and exercise our rights. And we're not going to pretend otherwise that this is a pleasant or easy transfer of power. This was a hostile takeover in Trump's view. I mean, the campaign run against him. The former First Lady, Michelle Obama, is already talking about the chaos and the hatred and racism and the rest in Demick campaign and what the Trump folks voted for. So I think, look, you got a divided country, and there's no sense us pretending otherwise. And Trump is not going to engage in any pretense. Yeah, I've made this point before on this program, but Robert Gates, uh, the former Defence Secretary to Presidents Bush and Obama, uh, several years ago, uh, two or three years before Donald Trump even ran for the White House, he said that the greatest national security threat to the United States, Pat, is, quote, the two square miles that encompass the White House and the Capitol building. Well, I think there's something to that, and I do think this. The vote, what's going to take place here, and it's not decided yet, the North Carolina Senate race was just conceded by the Democrat to Tom Tillis, which takes the Republicans up to, I believe, 51 seats in the Senate. I think they're going to win 52 when they take the Senate seat that is going to be counted Georgia. this weekend or this week, I think, in Alaska. Then, Tom, what you've got is in Georgia, two Senate seats will be decided in runoffs on January 5th. Now, if Democrats captured both of those, they would have the House of Representatives, the Senate, the Vice President of the United States, Kamala Harris, would be in the chair, Biden would be in the White House, and Republicans would be unable to stop what they did if they stripped the filibuster from the Republican Party in the Senate. And even Barack Obama says that radical change should be made so the Democrats can impose their agenda. You saw Chuck Schumer down in Georgia the other day. He said, you know, let's take Georgia and then we change America and then we change the world. They have an astonishing agenda. And the Republican Party is united. Conservatives are united against it. So look at January 5th for an historic day. If Republicans take both seats in the Senate, that will give them 50, 52 votes to 48 for the Democrats and Mitch McConnell will be the second most powerful, if not the most powerful man in Washington. My guest is Pat Buchanan. Uh, he's author of, among other influential books, Nixon's White House Wars and The Greatest Comeback, How Richard Nixon Rose from Defeat to Create a New Majority, which I reviewed uh, somewhat sympathetically in the UK Spectator, Pat, you may recall that. Now, given everything you've just said, if indeed the Democrats happened to gain the Senate, which seems unlikely, but if they did, and when all the remaining presidential votes are counted and all the legal avenues are exhausted, it's quite conceivable that the Electoral College result will be the virtual inversion of Trump's showing four years ago, 306, they get Georgia, to 232, 
Biden will have close to 51% of the popular vote. Now, given all of that, how can you say that Trumpism was not rejected? Well, I don't think the Democrats say that. On election night, they were weeping on <laughs> CNN, <laughs> and others were saying that this horrible man has gotten half the country behind him. They anticipated a blue wave. They anticipated a landslide. Polls showed uh, Democrats winning Wisconsin by 17. Major polls showed him winning by 10 points and 7 points. He eventually won by 3 points, apparently. They thought they were going to carry all these states. It was going to be a sweep, and they would gain seats in the House. They lost seats in the House. They were going to gain seats in the Senate. They got one seat in the Senate. And again, they thought they were going to win a landslide. They didn't win a landslide. Quite frankly, given the fact that of the horrendous losses and the tremendous burdens Trump was carrying, the fact that at the end of the campaign, Joe Biden was being forced out of his basement and Trump was bringing out rallies of thousands and thousands of people, being that the Democrats themselves realized that half the country sitting there against them, they may have the power, but it's sitting there against them. Okay. Now, one of the defining pillars of Trumpism, of course, is America first nationalism. I mentioned earlier that in 1992, when you ran against President George H.W. Bush, and then 1996, those presidential bids when you ran against Bob Dole. I'll never forget, by the way, when you won New Hampshire in early 1996. It was a political earthquake in Washington. I'm sure you'd remember that, Pat. Right. Uh, Quite well. <laughs> yeah. But the point here is that if this America first nationalism has now become more of an orthodoxy in Washington, isn't it fair to say that Joe Biden will be surrounded by advocates of American global leadership? So to the extent that Biden champions a Pax Americana, doesn't that challenge the notion of America first nationalism? No, let me say this. That when Trump ran and won, he clearly established the fact that the nationalism on which I ran, economic nationalism, America first, get out of these foreign wars, bring the troops home from places where they no longer belong, don't start any new cold wars, and look out after our own interests, secure our borders, bring the factories back home. All these ideas prevailed and won the presidency of the United States. They have clearly have half the country, some of them, and some of them more than half the country. The American people don't want any more wars in the Middle East. Let me say this, there is an establishment power in foreign policy, which is dominant over those of us who are anti-interventionists. It's dominant in the Republican Party, and it's got real power in, in the uh, Democratic Party, and it's dominant in the major media, and it is interventionist, but it doesn't have the people with it. I mean, we are evenly divided. I never contended that the internationalists and the globalists and the interventionists had disappeared and they're down to zero. They've got tremendous residual power and they're going to try to exercise it. But what I am saying is this. If you try to pass open borders legislation on immigration, there's going to be hell to pay in this country, politically and otherwise. And if you go and intervene in a foreign war, even Obama, if you recall, couldn't get any support to attack Syria for the gas attacks when he went up to the hill. So all of these are forces there, and obviously they're in abeyance now in the sense that they're not going to they're not going to be in power. But the idea that they've disappeared is preposterous when you consider the enormous support, as I say, Trump received, despite the fact he had the entire media, the entire establishment, 
the academic community, the cultural community, all of them against them. A lot of them in, the, in this city, people are writing and asking the question, how the devil did Trump get so many votes and get half the country after we all know he was a horrible man, racist, sexist, xenophobe, homophobe, Islamophobe, all of these things he was called, and half the country voted for him. That's not a victory for liberalism. What do you suspect Trump will do after January 20 when Biden takes the oath of office? Will he set up a cable TV channel, run again even? He's 74 now, and he would be 78 if he ran again. I think he's clearly going to be a force, a tremendous force in the Republican Party because he's got a residual support of people. I mean, no one, there are very few, will take on Trump and denounce him inside the Republican Party, and usually their future is limited, like Flake and some of the others, and the never-Trumpers and others, are never going to come back and lead the Republican Party again. Now, what will Trump do? Personally, I don't know. I'm not in touch with him. And, I mean, the idea of running, starting a new network, you've got Fox, you've got One American News, you've got Newsmax, you've got others. And uh, as for appearing on TV, I think he will do a lot of that. I just don't know what he's going to do. Mm. And uh, I don't think he'll go back just to being a businessman. Pat, always great talking with you. Always great talking to you, my friend. You take it easy. Patrick J. Buchanan, a Republican presidential candidate in the 1990s and a former advisor to Presidents Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer making sense of Australia's place in the world. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the Governor-General. Well, that was Gough Whitlam outside the steps of the old Parliament House uh, 45 years ago this week. Of course, it was, uh, it's really an understatement to say that this was one of the most tumultuous periods in our nation's political history. Of course, the Governor-General, John Kerr, dismissed Australia's 21st Prime Minister. And ever since, debate has raged about the relationship between the British monarchy and Yarralumla. Now, historian and Whitlam biographer, Jenny Hocking, she's claimed that the Queen and Buckingham Palace were in the know and they were indeed Kerr's co-agents in the dismissal. A new book based on the newly declassified correspondence between Buckingham Palace and the Governor-General, it sets the record straight. It's called The Truth of the Palace Letters, Deceit, Ambush and Dismissal in 1975. It's published by MUP, and the authors are the distinguished journalists at the Australian newspaper, Paul Kelly and Troy Bramston. Troy joins me now. Welcome back to Between the Lines, Troy. Hello, Tom. Always good to be on your show. Now, the National Archives made public the so-called palace letters. There are 212 letters between the Governor-General, Sir John Kerr, and Buckingham Palace. This is between August 74 and December 77. What do these long-secret letters reveal? Well, I think, Tom, they very clearly show that uh, there is no evidence that the Queen or her advisers, including Private Secretary Sir Martin Charteris knew about Kerr's detailed plan to dismiss Whitlam in advance or approved it with a royal green light. Uh, that is the the bottom line uh, final analysis conclusion. But the letters are very revealing once you get into the detail. You know, there's a number of occasions where the palace uh, seeks to caution and 
uh, counsel Kerr on on talking frankly to Gough Whitlam, hoping that a, a, a crisis over the budget would be avoided, praises him for not intervening before the dismissal, and really cautions him about using the reserve powers, saying they should only be used in the last resort and when there's no other course available. I mean, it's very clear in these letters, Tom, that the Queen was distant from events and always said this crisis had to be sorted out in Australia, um, and they sought no role and wanted no role. Um, But I think after the dismissal, we see a slightly changed tone in the letters where I think Sir Martin Charteris does risk the palace's integrity by going into overdrive with praise and flattery. Um, But then, of course, the dynamic had changed, and they then had a Governor-General who was under siege in Australia uh, thinking about resignation, and so he became a problem to manage. Okay, so the plot to dismiss the Prime Minister was hatched at Yarra Lumla, not in London. Now, Professor Hocking, now we should stress she's the prime mover in the courts to bring those palace letters into the light. She claims that the palace officials gave, quote, an unqualified green light to Kerr's dismissal of Whitlam. She claims the Queen was aware that Kerr was considering dismissal and did not dissuade him. She's made these points uh, throughout the year on RN's Breakfast with my colleague Frank Kelly. What's wrong with her thesis? Well, it's just completely wrong, Tom, and it's not borne out by the evidence of looking at the documents. And in this book that I've written with Paul Kelly, uh, we actually include a lot of the letters in full in an appendix to the book where people can read them themselves. And, you know, there's even letters written. The letter on 11 November that John Kerr writes to the palace, he actually says quite explicitly, I didn't let the palace know in advance. I didn't tell the Queen what I was planning to do. And then with the reply to that letter from the palace on the 17th of November, Sir Martin Charteris actually thanks Kerr for not giving the palace advance notice of his dismissal. So it's in black and white. It's staring you in the face. Um, And in his foreword to our book, Paul Keating says, to suggest that there is some kind of royal conspiracy is tilting at shadows. And and I'll make this point to you, you, Tom, which is essential, which is that uh, the question is never answered as to why the Queen would want to do this. And by all evidence, she had a very good relationship with Gough Whitlam, respected him, liked him personally uh, before and after the dismissal. And so this claim of a conspiracy doesn't stack up. There was a conspiracy. Yes, but Professor Professor Hocking does show several detailed exchanges between Kerr and the Palace about options to resolve the parliamentary deadlock over supply, the reserve powers, uh, dissolving the parliament, the possibility of dismissal. Hocking would say that that was most inappropriate. Well, I think, Tom, you can also say that when you look at the evidence, as is in the letters by John Kerr's own hand, um, that he's also reporting to the palace that he's having the same conversations with Gough Whitlam and Malcolm Fraser. That is, he's canvassing even the the use of the reserve powers to resolve this crisis. Look, I think the letters are excessive. Um, You know, they're probably unwise to be canvassing these issues in detail, but there is simply just no smoking gun. And Tom, for this book, we also interviewed former Governors General Bill Hayden, Quentin Bryce and Peter Cosgrove, and their verdict is the same, is that there's no evidence that the Queen has ever sought to interfere in our politics, and especially not in 1975. What about Professor Hocking's claim that on October 16, 1975, so about two or three weeks before the dismissal, visiting British diplomat Sir Michael Palliser had met with Kerr? 
Yeah, well, sure. I mean, there are there are meetings going on all the time, but this also is another extent of the conspiracy trying to implicate the British government. And, you know, I interviewed um, Harold Wilson's uh, policy advisor, Bernard Donoghue, a few years ago, and he said there was complete shock and surprise at number 10. They, they didn't know anything about this, didn't support it, didn't think it could possibly happen. Um, there were British diplomats in Australia, but what they were concerned about was the crisis implicating the Queen in any way. So there was this issue about a half-Senate election where if Conservative state premiers uh, had advised their state governors not to issue writs for an election, um, there might be a rush to the British establishment, to the British government, even to the palace, to try to get those writs issued. And so the British um, diplomats were worried about the palace or the British government becoming involved in this question about a Senate election. But, you know, even the dispatches from the High Commission in Canberra back to London, which Paul Kelly and I revealed a few years ago, showed that they were shocked and surprised by it. And they also thought it was the wrong thing for John Kerr to do. So this attempt to sort of invent a conspiracy uh, involving the palace or the British government just doesn't stack up when you look at the documentary evidence. Okay, but Professor Hocking is hardly alone here in pushing this conspiracy theory. This is Labor's legal affairs spokesman, Mark Dreyfus. He claims, quote, our unelected head of state on the other side of the world was advising the Governor General on how to remove our elected Prime Minister and never once thought to tell the elected Prime Minister what was being planned. Now, that's Mark Dreyfus. Uh, Troy, how would you respond to the shadow Attorney General? Well, I would say with respect, Tom, that he's completely wrong. I mean, Mark Dreyfus can say that, but in saying that, he has taken a different view to Bill Shorten, uh, to Kim Beasley, to Simon Crean, to Paul Keating, uh, and Bill Hayden, who we've interviewed. So there's, you know, five former Labor leaders who took a very different view. And when you actually look at the letter, there's a key letter, Tom, that's written on the 4th of November. It's the second last letter that came from the palace. And it's very, very clear in that letter that the palace are cautioning John Kerr about intervening and using the reserve powers. They say the reserve power should only be used as a last resort um, and when there's no other option available. And of course, there was always another option available, and that was to officially warn Whitlam about what John Kerr was planning to do to resolve uh, the crisis and to give Whitlam an opportunity to go to an election as Prime Minister, not as an opposition leader who had been dismissed by ambush. You mentioned before that the foreword to your book, uh, co-authored with Paul Kelly, is written by Paul Keating, the former Prime Minister, and he makes it very clear that although he's a committed Republican, of course, uh, he respects the Queen and uh, he warns other Republicans that accusing the Queen of complicity in Whitlam's dismissal, that'll only undermine their cause. Now, intriguingly, Malcolm Turnbull, the former Liberal Prime Minister, he's written the foreword to Jenny Hocking's new book on the subject. Uh, what's his line? Well, it, it is uh, astonishing, Tom, because uh, Malcolm Turnbull takes the view that the letters show that the Queen or the palace was actively encouraging dismissal um, and advising... Crikey. Uh, now, this is not a view that, as I say, is supported by the evidence. Uh, it's a view at odds with, with Paul Keating and Bill Hayden, who, you know, were actually ministers in 1975. Keating was Minister for Northern Australia. Hayden was Treasurer. And there are just four ministers left from the Whitlam government still alive today, and none of them have said that the Queen intervened in this way. It is an odd and strange position. 
Uh, as I say, also at odd, odds with other governors general, Peter Cosgrove and Quinton Bryce. And the point that Keating makes in the forward is that the Queen has always cherished Australia, respected Australia, but let it be independent. It's an important book that challenges this conventional wisdom within the ARM. It's called The Truth of the Palace Letters, Deceit, Ambush and Dismissal in 1975. It's published by MUP and the co-authors are Troy Bramston and Paul Kelly. Troy, great to have you on Radio National again. Thanks, Tom. Always good to talk to you. Troy Bramson, resident historian and columnist at The Australian Newspaper. Well, that's it for the program. And remember, if you'd like to hear my interview with Pat Buchanan again from earlier in the show, just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. And, of course, you can always download the show on the ABC Listen app. This is Tom Switzer. Hope you have a great day and thanks for tuning in. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.